Part two of Tale two of Five Tales by John Galsworthy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by David Wales. The room in the hotel where the general meetings of the Island Navigation Company were held was nearly full when the secretary came through the door, which as yet divided the shareholders from their directors. Having surveyed their empty chairs, their ink and papers, and nodded to a shareholder or two, he stood, watch in hand, contemplating the congregation. A thicker attendance than he had ever seen, due, no doubt, to the lower dividend and this pillin business, and his tongue curled. For he had a natural contempt for his board, with the exception of the chairman, he had a still more natural contempt for his shareholders. Amusing spectacle, when you came to think of it, a general meeting, unique. Eighty or a hundred men, and five women, assembled through sheer devotion to their money. Was any other function in the world so single-hearted? Church was nothing to it. So many motives were mingled there with devotion to one's soul. A well-educated young man, reader of Anatole France and other writers, he enjoyed ironic speculation. What earthly good did they think they got up to by coming here? Half-past two. He put his watch back into his pocket and passed into the boardroom. There the fumes of lunch and of a short preliminary meeting made cozy the February atmosphere. By the fire, four directors were conversing rather restlessly. The fifth was combing his beard. The chairman sat with eyes closed and red lips moving rhythmically in the sucking of a lozenge, the slips of his speech ready in his hand. The secretary said in his cheerful voice, Time, sir! Old Haythorpe swallowed, lifted his arms, rose with help, and walked through to his place at the center of the table. The five directors followed, and standing at the chairman's right, the secretary read the minutes, forming the words precisely with his curling tongue. Then, assisting the chairman to his feet, he watched those rows of faces and thought, mistake to let them see he can't get up without help. He ought to have let me read his speech. I wrote it. The chairman began to speak. It is my duty and my pleasure, ladies and gentlemen, for the nineteenth consecutive year to present to you the director's report and the accounts for the past twelve months. You will all have had special notice of a measure of policy on which your board has decided, and to which you will be asked today to give your adherence. To that I shall come at the end of my remarks. Uh, excuse me, sir, we can't hear a word down here. Ah, thought the secretary, I was expecting that. The chairman went on, undisturbed. But several shareholders now rose, and the same speaker said testily, We might as well go home. If the chairman's got no voice, can't somebody read for him? The chairman took a sip of water and resumed. Almost all in the last six rows were now on their feet, and amid a hubbub of murmurs the chairman held out to the secretary the slips of his speech, and fell heavily back into his chair. The secretary re-read from the beginning, 
and as each sentence fell from his tongue he thought, how good that is! That's very clear! A neat touch, that! This is getting them! It seemed to him a pity they could not know it was all his composition. When at last he came to the pillin sale, he paused for a second. I come now to the measure of policy to which I made allusion at the beginning of my speech. Your board has decided to expand your enterprise by purchasing the entire fleet of Pillin and Company Limited. By this transaction we become the owners of the four steamships Smyrna, Damascus, Tyre, and Sidon, vessels in prime condition with a total freight-carrying capacity of 15,000 tons, at the low inclusive price of 60,000 pounds. Gentlemen, de l'audace, toujours de l'audace. It was the chairman's phrase, his bit of the speech, and the secretary did it more than justice. Times are bad, but your board is emphatically of the opinion that they are touching bottom, and this, in their view, is the psychological moment for a forward stroke. They confidently recommend your adoption of their policy and the ratification of this purchase, which they believe will, in the not far distant future, substantially increase the profits of the company. The secretary sat down with reluctance. The speech should have continued with a number of appealing sentences which he had carefully prepared, but the chairman had cut them out with the simple comment, they ought to be glad of the chance. It was, in his view, an error. The director, who had combed his beard, now rose, a man of presence, who might be trusted to say nothing long and suavely. While he was speaking, the secretary was busy noting whence opposition was likely to come. The majority were sitting owl-like, a good sign but some dozen were studying their copies of the report, and three at least were making notes. Westgate, for instance, who wanted to get on the board and was sure to make himself unpleasant, the time-honored method of vinegar, and Batterson, who also desired to come on and might be trusted to support the board, the time-honored method of oil, while if one knew anything of human nature, the fellow who had complained that he might as well go home would have nothing uncomfortable to say. The director finished his remarks, combed his beard with his fingers, and sat down. A momentary pause ensued. Then Messrs. Westgate and Batterson rose together. Seeing the chairman nod towards the latter, the secretary thought, mistake, he should have humored Westgate by giving him precedence. But that was the worst of the old man. He had no notion of the suaviteur in modo. Mr. Batterson, thus unchained, would like, if he might be so allowed, to congratulate the board on having piloted their ship so smoothly through the troublous waters of the past year. With their worthy chairman still at the helm, he had no doubt that in spite of the still low, he would not say falling, barometer, and the er unseasonable climateric, they might rely on weathering the er he would not say storm. He would confess that the present dividend of four per cent was not one which satisfied every aspiration. Hear, hear. But speaking for himself, 
and he hoped for others, and here Mr. Batterson looked round, he recognized that in all the circumstances it was as much as they had the right um, to expect. But following the bold but to his mind prudent development which the board proposed to make, he thought that they might reasonably, if not sanguinely, anticipate a more golden future. No, no. A shareholder said, no, no. That might seem to indicate a certain lack of confidence in the special proposal before the meeting. Yes. From that lack of confidence, he would take at once to dissociate himself. Their chairman, a man of foresight and acumen and valor, proved on many a field and a uh, sea, would not have committed himself to this policy without good reason. In his opinion, they were in safe hands, and he was glad to register his support of the measure proposed. The chairman had well said in his speech, De l'audace, toujours de l'audace. Shareholders would agree with him that there would be no better motto for Englishmen. I am. Mr. Batterson sat down, and Mr. Westcott rose. He wanted, he said, to know more much more about this proposition, which to his mind was of a very dubious wisdom. Ah, thought the secretary, I told the old boy he must tell them more. To whom, for instance, had the proposal first been made? To him? The chairman said, good, but why were Pillins selling, if freights were to go up as they were told? Matter of opinion? Oh, quite so, and in my opinion they are going lower and Pillins were right to sell. It follows that we are wrong to buy. Here, here. No, no. Pillins were shrewd people. What does the chairman say? Nerves. Does he mean to tell us that this sale was the result of nerves? The chairman nodded. That appears to me a somewhat fantastic theory, but I will leave that and confine myself to asking the grounds on which the chairman bases his confidence. In fact, what it is which is actuating the board in pressing on us at such a time what I have no hesitation in stigmatizing as a rash proposal. In a word, I want light as well as leading in this matter. Mr. Westcott sat down. Well, what would the chairman do now? The situation was distinctly awkward. Seeing his helplessness and the lukewarmness of the board behind him. And the secretary felt more strongly than ever the absurdity of his being an underling, he who in a few well-chosen words could so easily have twisted the meeting round his thumb. Suddenly he heard the long, rumbling sigh which preluded the chairman's speeches. "'Has any other gentleman anything to say before I move the adoption of the report. Phew! That would put their backs up. Yes, sure enough, it had brought that fellow, who had said he might as well go home, to his feet. Now for something nasty. Mr. Westgate requires answering. I don't like this business. I don't impute anything to anybody but it looks to me as if there were something behind it which the shareholders ought to be told. Not only that, but, to speak frankly, 
I'm not satisfied to be ridden over roughshod in this fashion by one who, whatever he may have been in the past, is obviously not now in the prime of his faculties. With a gasp, the secretary thought, I knew that was a plain-spoken man. He heard again the rumbling beside him. The chairman had gone crimson, his mouth was pursed, his little eyes were very blue. Help me up, he said. The secretary helped him, and waited rather breathless. The chairman took a sip of water, and his voice, unexpectedly loud, broke an ominous hush. Never been so insulted in my life. My best services have been at your disposal for nineteen years. You know what measure of success this company has attained. I am the oldest man here, and my experience of shipping is, I hope, a little greater than that of the two gentlemen who spoke last. I have done my best for you, ladies and gentlemen, and we shall see whether you are going to endorse an indictment of my judgment and of my honor if I am to take the last speaker seriously. This purchase is for your good. There is a tide in the affairs of men, and I for one am not content, never have been, to stagnate. If that is what you want, however, by all means give your support to these gentlemen, and have done with it. I tell you, freights will go up before the end of the year. The purchase is a sound one, more than a sound one. I, at any rate, stand or fall by it. Refuse to ratify it, if you like. If you do, I shall resign. He sank back into his seat. The secretary, stealing a glance, thought with a sort of enthusiasm, Bravo! Who'd have thought he could rally his voice like that? A good touch, too, that about his honor. I believe he's knocked them. It's still dicky, though, if that fellow at the back gets up again. The old chap can't work that stop a second time. Ah, here was old apple pie on his hind legs. That was all right. I do not hesitate to say that I am an old friend of the chairman. We are, many of us, old friends of the chairman and it has been painful to me, and I doubt not to others, to hear an attack made on him. If he is old in body, he is young in mental vigor and courage. I wish we were all as young. We ought to stand by him. I say we ought to stand by him. Here, 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 here. And the secretary thought, oh, that's done it and he felt a sudden odd emotion, watching the chairman bobbing his body like a wooden toy at old Appleby, and old Appleby bobbing back. Then, seeing a shareholder close to the door get up, thought, Who's that? I know his face. Ah, yes, Ventner, the solicitor. He's one of the chairman's creditors that are coming again this afternoon. What now? I can't agree that we ought to let sentiment interfere with our judgment in this matter. The question is simply, how are our pockets going to be affected? I came here with some misgivings, but the attitude of the chairman has been such as to remove them, and I shall support the proposition. The secretary thought, that's all right, only he said it rather queerly, 
rather queerly. Then, after a long silence, the chairman, without rising, said, I move the adoption of the report and accounts. I second that. Those in favor signify the same in the usual way. Contrary? Carried. The secretary noted the dissentients, six in number, and that Mr. Westgate did not vote. A quarter of an hour later, he stood in the body of the emptying room, supplying names to one of the gentlemen of the press. The passionless fellow said, Haythorpe, with an A and an E. He seems an old man. Thank you. I may have the slips. Would you like to see a proof? With an A, you said, and an E. Ah, good afternoon. And the secretary thought, those fellows, what goes on inside them? Fancy not knowing the old chairman by now. Back in the proper office of the Island Navigation Company, old Haythorpe sat smoking a cigar and smiling like a purring cat. He was dreaming a little of his triumph, sifting with his old brain, still subtle, the wheat from the chaff of the demurrers. Westgate, nothing in that. Professional discontent till they silenced him with a place on the board, but not while he held the reins. That chap at the back, an ill-conditioned fellow. Something behind. Suspicious brute. There was nothing, but, hang it, they might think themselves lucky to get four ships at that price, and all due to him. It was on the last speaker that his mind dwelt with a doubt. That fellow Ventner, to whom he owed money, there had been something just a little queer about his tone, as much as to say, I smell a rat. Well, one would see that at the creditors' meeting in half an hour. Mr. Pillin, sir, uh, show him in. In a fur coat which seemed to extinguish his thin form, Joe Pillin entered. It was snowing, and the cold had nipped and yellowed his meager face between its slight gray whiskering. He said thinly, "'How are you, Sylvanus? Aren't you perished in this cold?' "'Warmest toast. Sit down. Take off your coat.' "'Oh, I should be lost without it. You must have a fire inside you. So, so, it's gone through?' Old Haythorpe nodded, and Joe Pillin, wandering like a spirit, scrutinized the shut door. He came back to the table, and said in a low voice, "'It is—' A great sacrifice. Old Haythorpe smiled. Have you signed the deed poll? Producing a parchment from his pocket, Joe Pillin unfolded it with caution to disclose his signature and said, I don't like it. It's irrevocable. A chuckle escaped old Haythorpe as death. Joe Pillin's voice passed up into the treble cleft. I can't bear irrevocable things. I, I consider you stampeded me, playing on my nerves. Examining the signatures, old Haythorpe murmured, Tell your lawyer to lock it up. He must think you a sad dog, Joe. Ah, suppose on my death it comes to the knowledge of my wife. She won't be able to make it hotter for you then than you'll be already. Joe Pillin replaced the deed within his coat emitting a queer, thin noise. 
He simply could not bear joking on such subjects. Well, he said, you've got your way. You always do. Who is this Mrs. Larne? You oughtn't to keep me in the dark. It seems my boy met her at your house. You told me she didn't come there. Old Haythorpe said with relish, Her husband was my son by a woman I was fond of before I married. Her children are my grandchildren. You've provided for them. Best thing you ever did. I don't know. I don't know. I'm sorry you told me. It makes it all the more doubtful. As soon as the transfer's complete, I shall get away abroad. This cold's killing me. I wish you'd give me your recipe for keeping warm. Get a new inside. Joe Pillin regarded his old friend with a sort of yearning. And yet, he said, I suppose with your full-blooded habit your life hangs by a thread, doesn't it? A stout one, my boy. Well, good-bye, Sylvanus. You're a Job's comforter. I must be getting home. He put on his hat, and, lost in his fur coat, passed out into the corridor. On the stairs he met a man who said, How do you do, Mr. Pillin? I know your son. Been seeing the chairman? I see your sales gone through all right. I hope that'll do us some good, but I suppose you think the other way. Peering at him from under his hat, Joe Pillin said, Mr. Ventner, I think. Thank you. It's very cold, isn't it? And with that cautious remark, he passed on down. Alone again, old Haythorpe thought, By George, what a wavering, quavering thread-paper of a fellow! What misery life must be to a chap like that! He walks in fear. He wallows in it. Poor devil! And a curious feeling swelled his heart, of elation, of lightness such as he had not known for years. Those two young things were safe now from penury. Safe. After dealing with those infernal creditors of his, he would go around and have a look at the children. With a hundred and twenty a year, the boy could go into the army, best place for a young scamp like that. The girl would go off like hotcakes, of course, but she needn't take the first calf that came along. As for their mother, she must look after herself. Nothing under two thousand a year would keep her out of debt but trust her for wheedling and bluffing her way out of any scrape. Watching his cigar smoke curl and disperse, he was conscious of the strain he had been under these last six weeks, aware suddenly of how greatly he had balked at thought of today's general meeting. Yes, it might have turned out nasty. He knew well enough the forces on the board, and off, who would be only too glad to shelve him. If he were shelved here, his other two companies would be sure to follow suit, and bang would go every penny of his income. He would be a pauper, dependent on that holy woman. Well, safe now for another year, if he could stave off these sharks once more. It might be a harder job this time. But he was in luck, in luck, and it must hold. And taking a luxurious pull at his cigar, he rang the handbell. Bring him in here, Mr. Farney, and let me have a cup of china tea as strong as you can make it. Yes, sir. Will you see the proof of the press report, or will you leave it to me? To you. Yes, sir. It was a good meeting, wasn't it? Old Haythorpe nodded. 
Wonderful how your voice came back just at the right moment. I was afraid things were going to be difficult. The insult did it, I think. It was a monstrous thing to say. I could have punched his head. Again old Haythorpe nodded, and looking into the secretary's fine blue eyes, he repeated, Bring him in. The lonely minute before the entrance of his creditors passed in the thought, So that's how it struck him. Short shrift I should get if it came out. The gentleman, who numbered ten this time, bowed to their debtor, evidently wondering why the deuce they troubled to be polite to an old man who kept them out of their money. Then, the secretary reappearing with a cup of china tea, they watched while their debtor drank it. The feat was tremulous. Would he get through without spilling it all down his front, or choking? To those unaccustomed to his private life, it was slightly miraculous. He put the cup down empty, tremblingly removed some yellow drops from the little white tuft below his lip, revit his cigar, and said, No use beating about the bush, gentlemen. I can offer you fourteen hundred a year so long as I live and hold my directorships, and not a penny more. If you can't accept that, you must make me bankrupt and get about sixpence in the pound. My qualifying shares will fetch a couple of thousand at market price. I own nothing else. The house I live in and everything in it, barring my clothes, my wine, and my cigars, belong to my daughter under a settlement fifteen years old. My solicitors and bankers will give you every information. That's the position in a nutshell. In spite of business habits, the surprise of the ten gentlemen was only partially concealed. A man who owed them so much would naturally say he owned nothing, but would he refer them to his solicitors and bankers, unless he was telling the truth? Then Mr. Ventner said, Will you submit your passbooks? No, but I'll authorize my bankers to give you a full statement of my receipts for the last five years, longer if you like. The strategic stroke of placing the ten gentlemen round the board had made it impossible for them to consult freely without being overheard, but the low-voiced transference of thought travelling round was summed up at last by Mr. Brownbee. We think, Mr. Haythorpe, that your fees and dividends should enable you to set aside for us a larger sum. Sixteen hundred, in fact, is what we think you should give us yearly representing as we do sixteen thousand pounds the prospect is not cheering but we hope you have some good years before you yet we understand your income to be two thousand pounds old haythorpe shook his head nineteen hundred and thirty pounds in a good year must eat and drink must have a man to look after me not as active as i was can't do on less than five hundred pounds Fourteen hundred's all I can give you, gentlemen. It's an advance of two hundred pounds. That's my last word. Silence was broken by Mr. Ventner. And it's my last word that I'm not satisfied. If these other gentlemen accept your proposition, I shall be forced to consider what I can do on my own account. The old man stared at him and answered, Oh, will you, sir? We shall see. The others had risen, and were gathered in a knot at the end of the table. Old Haythorpe and Mr. Ventner alone remained seated. 
The old man's lower lip projected till the white hairs below stood out like bristles. You ugly dog, he was thinking. You think you've got something up your sleeve. Well, do your worst. The ugly dog rose abruptly and joined the others, and old Haythorpe closed his eyes, sitting perfectly still, with his cigar, which had gone out, sticking up between his teeth. Mr. Brownby, turning to voice the decision come to, cleared his throat. Mr. Haythorpe, he said, if your bankers and solicitors bear out your statements, we shall accept your offer, faute de mieux, in consideration of your... But meeting the old man's eyes, which said so very plainly, blow your consideration, he ended with a stammer. Perhaps you will kindly furnish us with the authorization you spoke of. Old Haythorpe nodded, and Mr. Brownby, with a little bow, clasped his hat to his breast and moved towards the door. The nine gentlemen followed. Mr. Ventnor, bringing up the rear, turned and looked back, but the old man's eyes were already closed again. The moment his creditors were gone, old Haythorpe sounded the handbell. Help me up, Mr. Farney. That Ventnor. What's his holding? Quite small. Only ten shares, I think. Ah, what time is it? Quarter to four, sir. Get me a taxi. After visiting his bank and his solicitors, he struggled once more into his cab and caused it to be driven towards Millicent Villas. A kind of sleepy triumph permeated his whole being, bumped and shaken by the cab's rapid progress. So, he was free of those sharks now, as long as he could hold on to his companies, and he would still have a hundred a year or more to spare for Rosamond and her youngsters. He could live on four hundred, or even three-fifty, without losing his independence, for there would be no standing life in that holy woman's house unless he could pay his own scot. A good day's work, the best for many a long month. The cab stopped before the villa. There are rooms which refuse to give away their owners, and rooms which seem to say, they really are like this. Of such was Rosamond Lawrence, a sort of permanent confession, seeming to remark to anyone who entered, her taste, well, you can see, cheerful and exuberant. Her habits, yes, she sits here all the morning in a dressing gown, smoking cigarettes and dropping ink. Kindly observe my carpet. Notice the piano. It has a look of coming and going, according to the exchequer. This very deep-cushioned sofa is permanent, however. The watercolors on the wall are safe, too. There by herself. Mark the scent of mimosa. She likes flowers and likes them strong. No clock, of course. Examine the bureau. She is obviously always ringing for the drumstick and saying, Where's this, Ellen, and where's that? You naughty girl, you've been tidying. Cast an eye on that pile of manuscript. She has evidently a genius for composition. It flows off her pen. Like Shakespeare, she never blots a line. See how she's had the electric light put in, instead of that horrid gas? but try and turn either of them on, you can't. Last quarter isn't paid, of course, 
and she uses an oil lamp. You can tell that by the ceiling. The dog over there, who will not answer to the name of Carmen, a Pekingese spaniel like a little gin, all prominent eyes rolling their blacks and no nose between. Yes, Carmen looks as if she didn't know what was coming next. She's right. It's a pet and slap again life. Consider, too, the fittings of the tea tray. Rather soiled, though not quite tin. But I say unto you that no millionaire's in all its glory ever had a liqueur bottle on it. When old Haythorpe entered this room, which extended from back to front of the little house, preceded by the announcement, Mr. Aesop, it was resonant with a very clatter of noises from Phyllis playing the machiche, from the boy, Jacques, on the hearthrug, emitting at short intervals the most piercing notes from an ocarina, from Mrs. Larne on the sofa talking with her trailing volubility to Bob Pillin, from Bob Pillin muttering, yes, quite, yes, and gazing at Phyllis over his collar. And on the window-sill, as far as she could get from all of this noise, the little dog Carmen was rolling her eyes. At sight of their visitor, Jock blew one rending screech, and bolting behind the sofa, placed his chin on its top, so that nothing but his round, pink, unmoving face was visible, and the dog Carmen tried to climb the blind-cord. Encircled from behind by the arms of Phyllis, and preceded by the gracious perfumed bulk of Mrs. Larne, old Haythorpe was escorted to the sofa. It was low, and when he had plumped down into it, the boy Jacques emitted a hollow groan. Bob Pillin was the first to break the silence. "'How are you, sir? I hope it's gone through.' Old Haythorpe nodded. His eyes were fixed on the liqueur and Mrs. Larne murmured, "'Gardy, you must try our new liqueur. Jacques, you awful boy, get up and bring Gardy a glass.' The boy Jacques approached the tea-table, took up a glass, and put it to his eye and filled it rapidly. "'You horrible boy! You could see that glass had been used.' In a high, round voice, rather like an angel's, Jacques answered, "'All right, mother, I'll get rid of it,' and rapidly swallowing the yellow liqueur, took up another glass. Mrs. Larne laughed. Ah, what am I to do with him? A loud shriek prevented a response. Phyllis, who had taken her brother by the ear to lead him to the door, let him go to clasp her injured self. Bob Pillin went hastening towards her, and following the young man with her chin, Mrs. Larne said, smiling, Aren't those children awful? He's such a nice fellow. We like him so much, Gardy. The old man grinned. So she was making up to that young pup. Rosamond Larne, watching him, murmured, Oh, Gardy, you're as bad as Jock. He takes after you terribly. Look at the shape of his head. Jock, come here. The innocent boy approached, with his girlish complexion, his flowery blue eyes, his perfect mouth, he stood before his mother like a large cherub, and suddenly he blew his ocarina in a dreadful manner. Mrs. Larne launched a box at his ears, and receiving the wind of it, he fell prone. "'That's the way he behaves. Be off with you, you awful boy. I want to talk to Gardy.' 
The boy withdrew on his stomach, and sat against the wall cross-legged, fixing his innocent round eyes on old Haythorpe. Mrs. Larne sighed. Things are worse and worse, Guardy. I'm at my wit's end to tide over this quarter. You wouldn't advance me a hundred on my new story. I'm sure to get two for it in the end. The old man shook his head. I've done something for you and the children, he said. You'll get notice of it in a day or two. Ask no questions. Oh, Guardy, oh, you dear! and her gaze rested on Bob Pillin, leaning over the piano, where Phyllis again sat. Old Haythorpe snorted, "'What are you cultivating that young Gabby for? She mustn't be grabbed up by any fool who comes along.' Mrs. Larne murmured at once, "'Of course, the dear girl is much too young. Phyllis, come and talk to Gardy.' When the girl was installed beside him on the sofa, and he had felt that little thrill of warmth the proximity of youth can bring, he said, "'Been a good girl?' She shook her head. "'Can't, when Jock's not at school. Mother can't pay for him this term.' Hearing his name, the boy Jock blew his ocarina till Mrs. Lawrence drove him from the room, and Phyllis went on, "'He's more awful than anything you can think of. Was my dad at all like him, Guardy?' Mother's always so mysterious about him. I suppose you knew him well." Old Haythorpe, incapable of confusion, answered stolidly, "'Not very.' "'Who was his father? I don't believe even Mother knows.' "'Man about town in my day.' "'Oh, your day must have been jolly. Did you wear peg-up trousers and dundries?' Old Haythorpe nodded. What larks! And I suppose you had lots of adventures with opera dancers and gambling. The young men are all so good now." Her eyes rested on Bob Pillin. That young man's a perfect stick of goodness. Old Haythorpe grunted. You wouldn't know how good he was, Phyllis went on musingly, unless you'd sat next to him in a tunnel. The other day he had his waist squeezed and he simply sat still and did nothing. And then, when the tunnel ended, it was Jock, after all, not me. His face was, oh, <laughs> She threw back her head, displaying all her white wound throat. Then, edging near, she whispered, He likes to pretend, of course, that he's fearfully lively. He's promised to take Mother and me to the theatre and supper afterwards. Won't it be scrummy? Only I haven't anything to go in. Old Haythorpe said, what do you want? Irish poplin? Her mouth opened wide. Oh, Guardy, soft white satin. How many yards will go round you? I should think about twelve. We could make it ourselves. You are a chook. A scent of hair like hay enveloped him, her lips bobbed against his nose, and there came a feeling in his heart as when he rolled his first sip of a special wine against his palate. This little house was a rumty-too affair, her mother was a humbug, the boy a cheeky young rascal, but there was a warmth here he never felt in that big house which had been his wife's and was now his holy daughter's. And once more he rejoiced at his day's work and the success of his breach of trust, which put some little ground between these young feet 
in a hard and unscrupulous world. Phyllis whispered in his ear, Guardy, do look. He will stare at me like that. Isn't it awful? Like, like a boiled rabbit. Bob Pillin, attentive to Mrs. Larne, was gazing with all his might over his shoulder at the girl. The young man was moonstruck, that was clear. There was something almost touching in the stare of those puppy-dog eyes. And he thought, young beggar, wish I were his age. The utter injustice of having an old and helpless body when your desire for enjoyment was as great as ever. They said a man was as old as he felt. Fools! A man was as old as his legs and arms, and not a day younger. He heard the girl beside him utter a discomfortable sound, and saw her face cloud as if tears were not far off. She jumped up, and going to the window, lifted the little dog and buried her face in its brown and white fur. Old Haythorpe thought, she sees that her humbugging mother is using her as a decoy. But she had come back, and the little dog, rolling its eyes horribly at the strange figure on the sofa, in a desperate effort to escape, succeeded in reaching her shoulder, where it stayed perched like a cat, held by one paw, and trying to back away into space. Old Haythorpe said abruptly, Are you very fond of your mother? Of course I am, Guardy. I adore her. Hmm. Listen to me. When you come of age or marry, you'll have a hundred and twenty a year of your own that you can't get rid of. Don't ever be persuaded into doing what you don't want. And remember, your mother's a sieve. No good giving her money. Keep what you'll get for yourself. It's only a pittance, and you'll want it all, every penny. Phyllis's eyes had opened very wide, so that he wondered if she had taken in his words. Oh, isn't money horrible, Guardy? The want of it. No, it's beastly altogether. If only we were like birds, or if one could put out a plate overnight and have just enough in the morning to use during the day. Old Haythorpe sighed. There's only one thing in life that matters, independence. Lose that, and you lose everything. That's the value of money. Help me up. Phyllis stretched out her hands, and the little dog, running down her back, resumed its perch on the window-seal, close to the blind cord. Once on his feet, old Haythorpe said, Give me a kiss. You'll have your satin tomorrow. Then looking at Bob Pillin, he remarked, Going my way? I'll give you a lift. The young man gave Phyllis one appealing look, answered dully, Uh, th thanks and they went out together to the taxi. In that draftless vehicle they sat, full of who knows what contempt of age for youth and youth for age, the old man resenting this young pup's aspiration to his granddaughter, the young man annoyed that this old image had dragged himself away before he wished to go. Old Haythorpe said at last, Well, thus expected to say something, Bob Pillin muttered, "'Glad your meetin's gone off well, sir. You scored a triumph, I should think.' "'Why?' "'Oh, I don't know. I thought you had a good bit of opposition to contend with.' Old Haythorpe looked at him. "'You're her grandmother,' he said. Then, with his habitual instinct of attack, added, 
You make the most of your opportunities, I see." At this rude assault Bob Pillin's red cheeked face assumed a certain dignity. "I don't know what you mean, sir. Mrs. Larne is very kind to me." "No doubt. But don't try to pick the flowers." Thoroughly upset, Bob Pillin preserved a dogged silence. This fortnight since he had first met Phyllis in old Haythorpe's hall had been the most singular of his existence up to now. He would never have believed that a fellow could be so quickly and completely bold, could succumb without a kick, without even wanting to kick. To one with his philosophy of having a good time and never committing himself too far, it was in the nature of a fair knockout, and yet so pleasurable except for the wear and tear about one's chances. If only he knew how far the old boy really counted in the matter. To say, my intentions are strictly honourable, would be old-fashioned. Besides, the old fellow might have no right to hear it. They called him Guardy, but without knowing more, he did not want to admit the old curmudgeon's right to interfere. Are you a relation of theirs, sir? Old Haythorpe nodded. Bob Pillin went on with desperation. I should like to know what your objection to me is. The old man turned his head so far as he was able. A grim smile bristled the hairs about his lips and twinkled in his eyes. What did he object to? Why, everything. Object to? That, that sleek head, those puppy-dog eyes, fattish red cheeks, high collars, pearl pin, spats, and draw-paw. The imbecility, the smugness of his mug. No go, no devil in any of his sort. In any of these fish-veined, coddled-up young bloods, nothing but playing for safety. And he wheezed out, milk and water, masquerading as port wine. Bob Pillin frowned. It was almost too much for the composure even of a man of the world. That this paralytic old fellow should express contempt for his virility was really the last thing in jests. Luckily, he could not take it seriously. But suddenly he thought, what if he really has the power to stop my going there, and means to turn them against me? And his heart quailed. Awfully sorry, sir, he said if you don't think I'm wild enough. Anything I can do for you in that line?" The old man grunted, and realizing that he had been quite witty, Bob Pillin went on, I know I'm not in debt, no entanglements, got a decent income, pretty good expectations and all that, but I can soon put that all right if I'm not fit without. It was perhaps his first attempt at irony and he could not help thinking how good it was. But old Haythorpe preserved a deadly silence. He looked like a stuffed man, a regular Aunt Sally, sitting there, with the fixed red in his cheeks, his stivered hair, square block of a body, and no neck that you could see, only wanting the pipe in his mouth. Could there really be danger from such an old idol? The idol spoke. I'll give you a word of advice. Don't hang round there, or you'll burn your fingers. Remember me to your father. Good night." The taxi had stopped before the house in Sefton Park. An insensate impulse to remain seated and argue the point 
fought in Bob Pillin with an impulse to leap out, shake his fist in at the window, and walk off. He merely said, however, thanks for the lift, good night, and getting out deliberately, he walked off. Old Haythorpe, waiting for the driver to help him up, thought, fatter, but no more guts than his father. In his sanctum he sat at once into his chair. It was wonderfully still there every day at this hour, just the click of the coals, just the faintest ruffle from the wind in the trees of the park. And it was cosily warm, only the fire lightening the darkness. A drowsy beatitude pervaded the old man. A good day's work. A triumph, that young pup had said. Yes, something of a triumph. He had held on and won. And dinner to look forward to yet. A nap, a nap and soon, rhythmic, soft, sonorous, his breathing rose with now and then that pathetic twitching of the old who dream. End of Part 2